John chapter 13, verse 21 is where we're going to start reading here in just a moment. But thinking about the passage here that we just read before we prayed, following the command to love each other the way Jesus loves us will hold this community together. Let me say that again because I think this is important. Following the command to love each other the way that Jesus loves us will hold this community together. And I mean this community in the sense of us, Living Hope Church, the local church, as it is manifest this morning. And I mean us in the larger sense as well, the followers of Jesus Christ in the coming days and weeks and months and years. Following Christ's command to love each other the way he loves us is going to hold this community together. And not only that, Jesus has something amazing about the expression of his love. It will draw others. They will see the love of Christ amongst us. And it will draw them into the family of God. It's an amazing set of promises. In our passage of Scripture this morning, right in the middle of two very distressing realities, and I'm going to go through the rest of chapter 13 this morning because I believe John has structured it this way for us. Right in the middle of two distressing realities, Jesus talks about love. He commands his disciples to love each other the way that he has loved them. And we've just seen this incredible expression of that love in the washing of the disciples' feet. And I find this remarkable because today we're going to read about betrayal and we're going to read about denial, both of them from inside the house from inside the circle, both of them at the table with Jesus in this passage of Scripture. See, the disciples are getting ready to go through their most tumultuous 72 hours. Their fellowship is going to be scattered. It's going to feel like it's going to come within inches of being blown apart. One of these disciples is going to get Jesus arrested and killed. And another one's going to deny that he ever knew Jesus at all. One of them that we thought was maybe the strongest among us. He's going to say, eh, I'm not even sure I want to say I know Jesus Christ. So Jesus' words in this moment, he says, I will be glorified and you will learn to love one another. This three-part passage this morning it goes like this. The first part is this. Judas leaves the table. Jesus tells the disciples that one of them is going to betray him. Now, betrayal is a powerful thing, but it isn't the most powerful thing at the table in this passage of Scripture. But Judas will leave the table. Jesus, again, is going to prepare the disciples for what's coming. And in a very short paragraph, in the middle of these two conversations, Jesus gives them, he gives us a lot. Jesus and his heavenly Father will be glorified, and we will love one another. And the way that Jesus puts that prompts Peter to react. So Peter then jumps into the conversation, and Peter makes promises. Peter promises his loyalty to Jesus Christ. I will never let you go someplace alone. I will lay down my life for you. And Peter has, I believe, absolutely every intention of laying down his life for Jesus Christ. But then Jesus turns to him and says, this commitment of yours right now, Peter, 
will not last the night. This is an incredible passage between Jesus and his disciples, and I think some powerful and important things for us to learn and to hear. So let's begin reading in our passage of Scripture, beginning in chapter 13, verse 21. It goes like this. After saying these things, Jesus was troubled in his spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. The disciples looked at one another, uncertain of whom he spoke. One of his disciples, whom Jesus loved, was reclining at the table at Jesus' side. So Simon Peter motioned to him and to ask Jesus of whom he was speaking. So that disciple, leaning back against Jesus, said to him, Lord, who is it? And Jesus answered, it is he to whom I will give this morsel of bread when I have dipped it. So when he had dipped the morsel, he gave it to Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot. And after that, he had taken the morsel, and after he had taken the morsel, Satan entered into him. Jesus said to him, what you are going to do, do quickly. Now, no one at the table knew why he said this to him. Some thought that because Judas had the money bag, Jesus was telling him, buy what we need for the feast, or that he should give something to the poor. So after receiving the morsel of bread, he immediately went out, and it was night. So Jesus, at this point, he's washed the disciples' feet. He's put his robe back on. He's taken his place back at the table. He's had a conversation with the disciples about, do you understand what this act of service and humility and love means? So he started that act of service and humility and love means. So he started that conversation. And at this point, John says, and he's troubled in spirit. So Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you. And remember, it's in the gospel. They don't happen very, very often, but they happen twice in this passage. Truly, truly, I say to you, one of you will betray me. This is really a stunning statement at a stunning moment. Jesus has finished washing their feet, telling them that they're going to serve one another the way that he has served them, which is a radical departure from some of what's called leadership training today. Jesus is sending them out with a different point of view, a different way of walking into the world, a different way of leading, a different way of serving. So he's breaking old habits and he's starting new ones inside of the kingdom of God. So it's this powerful moment. And remember, as Jesus has walked through his life, Jesus lived the sinless life. He literally did not sin. Jesus taught the truth of the love and the justice of the kingdom of God. Jesus healed. Jesus saved people from demonic possession. Jesus taught the disciples. Jesus did nothing wrong. And here he is now at this moment and he says, one of you is going to betray me. Who on earth would betray Jesus? And why would they do that? These are some powerful questions inside of this passage of Scripture. As we read through this passage, it says, in the, the, G, the, the disciple whom Jesus loved was reclining at the table by Jesus' side. So Peter, you know, Peter's always kind of pushing these conversations forward. He leans over and he says, hey, ask him who it is. I want to know who it is. The disciple whom Jesus loved is a phrase we're going to run up against a few times between now and the end of the gospel. And it's John's way of referring to himself. 
Jesus has a circle of these 12 disciples. He has a circle of a larger group of people. Then he also has a circle of three disciples that he does some unique things with, including uh, Peter, James, and John. But when John refers to himself as the disciple whom Jesus loved, I don't believe that this is a kind of I'm part of the inner circle sort of moment as far as John the disciple is concerned. This is John's recognition that he is just loved by Jesus. He is the disciple that Jesus loves. You are the disciple that Jesus loves. So this is just how John refers to himself. This is how he sees himself, how he identifies himself in the story of Jesus Christ. Now the way that they would sit at this table, it's not like the famous painting but they would sit at a U-shaped table. It's more like reclining than it is sitting. They would lean on their left arms with their feet back away from the table, and they would eat with their right hands. And so that would put John's head literally right next to the chest of Jesus. So he is right next to Jesus, and that's how the text puts it. He leans back against Jesus' chest, and he asks him, who is it who is going to betray you? So in this powerful moment, Jesus arranges this signal. But John said when this happens, Jesus takes the bread and he dips it, and he hands it to Judas. And John says, and Satan enters him. Judas is an interesting character. I'm going to solve all of your questions about Judas this morning. You're laughing because you know that's not true. But it's important to hear what the text says, what we know about this. Judas is already arranged for the betrayal of Jesus. By the time we get to this point, he's gone through the process. He's talked to the Pharisees and the religious leaders that we know in John's gospel are making plans to kill Jesus. It turns out they've been making plans with Judas to betray him, get a hold of him, and then get him killed. Judas has already turned his back against Christ, his heart and mind against God and his son. Judas is a complicated character. And in the end, he's a profoundly tragic character. But right now, we're at this critical moment where it's actually going to happen a little bit later this night. Remember, chapters 13 through 17 are all one teaching in one night, and then chapter 18 is the betrayal of Jesus Christ when Judas shows up with the soldiers. And at this moment, he is wholly and completely given over to Satan. Now, this is an interesting image that John the Gospel writer uses because there is this vocabulary in the New Testament about those of us who follow Jesus Christ that when we are saved, we become filled with the Holy Spirit. And there's this sense in the New Testament that the longer we walk with Jesus Christ and the more that we are given over to him and the more we reflect who Jesus Christ is, we continue to be filled even more with the Holy Spirit. So when we walk in the way of Jesus, one of the passages in the Apostle Paul, he says, you're being, being filled with the Holy Spirit. It appears that Judas has been walking in the other direction. And every step along the way, it's growing darker and darker and darker. And now he has hit this moment where he is filled with Satan. Satan takes him, walks him through the next several steps, 
gets Jesus betrayed, and then Satan throws Judas away. You read some more of his story in Matthew chapter 25. He comes to his senses. He realizes what he's done. He throws away the blood money, and he hangs himself. He kills himself. The apostle Peter, later on in the book of Acts, when he's reflecting on Judas, and now that they need to uh, replace him, fill his slot with someone, Peter talks about Judas as if he was fully and completely part of the fellowship. As far as the disciples were concerned, this is the role that Judas had. He was one of us. In fact, even after Jesus says, one of you will betray me, here's the one who will betray me. I'm handing him a piece of bread. He hands Judas the piece of bread. What does the text say? And the disciples are still confused. This is a radical moment. Well, maybe Jesus is actually sending him out to buy some more food for the feast. Maybe there's something else. Maybe we're giving alms to the poor. We don't quite, can't quite put all of this together. So from the disciples' point of view, this is a radical moment that really won't come together until they see Judas in the garden later on with the rest of the disciples. But Satan uses him, and Satan discards him. This is what the enemy does. This is what Satan does. Satan is not a metaphor in Scripture. The Greek for Satan is a word for <coughs> adversary. Can be used as a noun, which is why, it's act, why it acts like a name for our enemy, Satan, the adversary. He is an actual created divine being who is completely bent upon destroying God's plan and destroying God's people. And through Judas and this betrayal, this is his attempt to destroy the plan of God through the cross, and he does actually destroy Judas. So it's this tragic, powerful moment that's sort of unfolding for us at this meal after these powerful things that Jesus has done. It's so radical and out of the box, John says, and none of us knew why this was happening. They had their guesses, but they weren't going to put it all together until later on. And then John, I believe, is actually very good at the way that he structures the story of Jesus Christ. It's, it's a piece of literature. It's not just a narrative. And when Judas takes the morsel and he walks out the door, John just simply notes, and it was night. We're intended to feel the darkness of this moment. Jesus has been saying over the last couple of chapters things like, you need to walk while it is still the day because night is coming. And for Judas and for the difficulty the disciples are about to walk through, it is in more ways than one now, night. So Judas betrays Jesus. I want to think about this for a few minutes. This is where we pull out the balloons and lollipops and make everybody feel happy. I want to talk about betrayal. I want to talk about how this moment fits into the life of Jesus and the disciples and their reactions and what happens here. Betrayal is just very simply uh, a violation of trust or of confidence. It's just a violation of the trust that we have put in someone, the confidence that we have placed in someone. And if you have not been betrayed yet, 
here's some good news. You will be betrayed. This is how human nature works. This is how walking through this life works. I want to think a little bit about what happens in this passage of Scripture. And maybe some a biblical understanding, maybe a biblical response even to these kinds of moments. First of all, and we touched on this briefly a little while ago, recognize this. Betrayal does not stop the work of God. It doesn't do that. It's night. Jesus will be arrested. He will be flogged. He will be crucified. He will die. But guess what? He will rise again. Betrayal, even betrayal as deep as this, betrayal at the table from inside the house doesn't stop the work of God. In fact, very next thing that Jesus is going to tell his disciples, and he's going to use this piece of vocabulary repeatedly, I will be glorified. If you are betrayed, God is still at work. Let's be completely honest about how this happens, how this hits us sometimes. Betrayal changes our path. It changes our expectations. It changes the way we think the next day is going to go. It changes who we think we're going to walk through our future with. Betrayal just shuffles the table. We just don't know exactly what to do with it. But it never diminishes the power of God at work inside of your life. None of it surprises him. None of it shuffles his expectations. He is still at work. Other people will betray you, but God never will. The more I thought through this passage of Scripture, the more I kept looking at and thinking about and and wandering through some of the Psalms. Psalms are full of this kind of thing. Here's a couple of them. Psalm chapter 3, verses 1 through 4. O Lord, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. But you, O Lord, are a shield about me my glory, and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord, and he answered me from his holy hill. Look at these cruel things people are saying about me. You, O Lord, you are my shield. You are the lifter of my head. You are my rescuer. You are my salvation. Further on in Psalm 119, Psalm 119, verses 150 and 150. Yeah, there's at least that many verses in Psalm 119. They drew near who persecute me with evil purpose. They are far from your law, but you are near, O Lord, and your commandments are true. But you, you're near, and everything you have ever said is true and trustworthy and secure. Betrayal tempts us to quit. The 
personal and the emotional strain of betrayal is powerful. And in fact, sometimes betrayal is often a certain kind of sabotage. This is the intent. I need to get you to quit. This isn't a temptation for Christ. He knows what's going to unfold and how it will unfold. But it was the desire of Satan. So much that he has entered into a heart that has opened himself to Satan. He's entered into one of the disciples. He walks through this plane and thinks, well, if I can get Christ killed, maybe this destroys the plan. Betrayal tempts us to quit. And friends, I believe, and this is Pastor Phil talking, but I believe the longer that we are Christians in this culture and the more territory the enemy takes or the more territory it feels like the enemy takes, the more the betrayal will come from inside the house. People that we thought were stable and secure in the faith, it turns out they weren't. And the betrayal will come from the table. A disciple will leave the table. Listen to how Jesus tells his disciples about how to prepare for things like this. It's in Mark chapter 13, verses 11 and 12. And when they bring you to trial and deliver you over, do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. And brother will deliver brother over to death, and the father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death. Don't worry, Jesus says, the Holy Spirit is still with you. Holy Spirit is walking ahead of you. The Holy Spirit has prepared you for this. The Holy Spirit will even speak for you. Listen to that kind of encouragement. And we're going to hear language like this in the next few chapters as Jesus speaks to his disciples. And he says, look, if the world treated me like this and you follow me, don't be surprised if the world treats you like this. This is important. Betrayal tempts us to quit. It tempts us to to quit the thing that God is asking us to do right now. It also tempts people to quit the faith and the church altogether. This is one of the most powerful and distressing things that is sweeping through the evangelical church right now. Well, other Christians did things that hurt me, therefore, it's all false. I my faith and rebuild it on my own foundation. This is a powerful temptation inside of the life of the church right now. And remember, this is exactly what the enemy wants. He wants to try to destroy the work of God, and he wants to try to destroy the people of God. But it's in these moments where you and I, faithful to Jesus Christ, are building what we keep on calling faithful endurance. We're just going to keep it up. We're going to keep walking through. So sometimes betrayal tempts us to quit. I would have noticed this as well, at least quickly. Jesus did nothing wrong, and he was still betrayed. None of us in this room are Jesus. So understand what I'm saying here. All of us are human beings, and all of us make mistakes. But you're not always betrayed because you're at fault. Sometimes it's because someone else has just decided to go in another direction, and as hurtful as it can possibly be, they just turn around. 
Betrayal can still happen when we have done all that we can. And then I don't think we can leave this topic without at least placing this somewhere inside of our hearts and minds. And I say this from time to time so that you kind of know where I'm coming from when I say stuff like this. I'm not giving you this because I have perfected this. I'm giving you this because I believe genuinely that this is the biblical testimony about this. We are still called to forgive. We are still called to forgive. Forgiveness is not an option for the follower of Jesus Christ. As difficult and as lengthy as that process can be sometimes, it isn't an option. We know that forgiveness is not the same thing as placing trust back in someone. We know that forgiveness is not the same thing as the immediate restoration of that relationship, though all of those things can still happen. Forgiveness is different. Something, forgiveness is something we give. It's not something that we expect from someone else. Forgiveness is something we give. This isn't a sermon on forgiveness, but I want to give you this because we, we, we put it this way when we talk about forgiveness. Forgiveness happens when I release my claim on the hurt done to me as I lay it at God's feet. I am now free to release the situation and the person to God and learn to move ahead with mercy instead of bitterness. I believe that this is a fair representation of the biblical notion of forgiveness. Legitimate betrayal gives us a reason what we feel like is an absolute legitimate reason to carry anger with us, to carry bitterness with us, to carry unforgiveness with us. But bitterness and unforgiveness are like drinking a bottle of poison and waiting for the other person to die. It sits in us and it tears us to pieces. We are still called to forgive. So this is something powerful that's happening at this table. It's so out of the ordinary. It's such a shock to the system that even when Jesus tells them what's happening and who's doing it, the disciples still go, I'm not sure that's really what's going on here. In that moment, Judas walks out the door Jesus says this, verse 31. When he had gone out, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Did you catch it? Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me, and just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Judas walks out the room, 
And Jesus says, now the Son of Man is glorified. God the Father is glorified. God the Father is glorified in the Son, and if he glorifies the Son, he's going to glorify himself. Now, this is happening. The language, the vocabulary has been growing in the Gospel of John over the last couple of chapters. Jesus has been talking a little bit more about his glorification, this moment that is coming, and here now Jesus says, this is it. The cross and everything that follows is to the glory of Jesus Christ and is to the glory of God the Father. Satan is trying to destroy the plan. It turns out the cross is the plan. The crucified and risen Savior will become the ruler of all creation for all of eternity. With whatever complication, with whatever difficulty, with whatever betrayal, with whatever personal pain or fog that sits inside of our lives, do not be afraid, saint. You belong to the Lord of all history and the God of all glory. In this moment, now I'm worried that things aren't going to turn out right. Let's try one more time, guys. Let's pull things together and let's do things right. That's not what Jesus says. Now, the glory of God will be seen. This passage of Scripture reminds us, and it remi- it's, been remi- it's been reminding scholars and Christian theologians for 2,000 years of one other passage of Scripture in the Old Testament where we get a quick glimpse of Jesus Christ as King of Kings. It happens in the middle of Daniel. It's in Daniel chapter 7, verses 13 and 14. This is the Jesus who sits with his disciples around the table this night. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Now is the Son of Man glorified, Jesus says. This is who I am. Now this is what I need from you, a new commandment I'm going to give you. What I need you to do is to love one another just like you have seen me love you. And when you do that, it's going to end up drawing people to Jesus Christ. This is what I need from you now, tonight. This new commandment, it is new in the sense that Jesus gives it at this moment, that Jesus presses this specifically. This is what the love of God looks like. This is what the love of God does. This is what the love of God endures and overcomes. I find it remarkable that it's at this point that Jesus gives us this command. 
It would have been really cool if after the feeding of the 5,000 with all of those baskets or after the healing of a demon-possessed child or the raising of someone from the dead, Jesus says, I want you to go forth and do likewise. And everybody's, yes. Judas has walked out of the room. The disciples are confused. We're on our way to his betrayal, crucifixion, and death. And he says, now I want you to hear this. In the middle of all of that, love each other. Love each other the way that I've loved you. Now listen, God loves the world. And he calls us to love the world. This moment is focused on the disciples around that table. God has said things like, for God so loved the world. That's a truth that belongs to all of us, but this intense moment belongs to the disciples. In fact, the way that Jesus puts it, Christ's love among us is critical to our mission to the world. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. This is how they will know us. This is how they will learn who Jesus is. This is how they will find the appealing power of the Holy Spirit amongst us. It's not because of how cool and hip we are and that Pastor Phil is finally wearing skinny jeans. I mean, come on. Nobody wants that. If you love each other, even in the middle of betrayal, and denial, and sin, and guilt, they will know that you belong to me. It makes such an impression on John the disciple that it can actually be said that 1 John, the entire epistle, is a commentary on this command. That epistle is full of what it means to love and who God is, that God is love. And here's part of what John says in 1 John chapter 2. Beloved, I am writing you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. We've been teaching this now for decades. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away, and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness, but whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling." We've been teaching you this command over and over again and let it be new to you again today. Walk in the light. Walk in the love of Jesus Christ. And then we won't stumble. So in between betrayal and denial, Jesus does not counsel us to become defensive or bitter or to hide behind closed doors. He does something else altogether. No matter what people do to change the plan of God, no matter how hard our enemy works to defeat God's plan, no matter how many Christians still fail, Jesus will be glorified and we are called 
to love. This is what he's calling us to do. This is how we move forward. He gives us this command to love our brothers and sisters in Christ. And this is how we hold the family of God together. The family we see, the family we don't. And this is what will help hold you together, even in the middle of betrayal and denial. Well, this moment isn't over. Peter steps in, keeps pushing these conversations forward. Well, Peter's got something to say. So let's hear what he says in verse 36. Simon Peter said to him, Lord, where are you going? Remember, Jesus told him, I'm going to tell you what I told the Jews. Where I'm going, you cannot follow. Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow me afterward. That thought comes back to us at the end of the Gospel of John. And Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. And Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Lord, you say you're going somewhere that we can't follow. Where is it that you are going? Christ is talking about the process that's going to take him through the cross and into the tomb and out the other side. And they said, you can't follow me on this path right now, Peter. But then he throws in, but you are going to eventually follow me down this path. So Peter, in what I believe to be a genuine expression of love and loyalty to Jesus Christ, promises to lay down his life for Jesus. It's an honest claim. He loves Christ. He will go wherever he goes. He doesn't want Jesus to go by himself. I'm going to be there with you, and I will defend you whatever it takes. And this, this bravado of Peter's makes a misstep later on that night. And then it takes another misstep later on that night. And there's work then to be done between Peter and Jesus. It's a rash promise, and Peter does not yet know his weakness. But Jesus does. But Jesus does. So Jesus tells him, truly, truly, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Morning will not dawn. It's night now. Morning will not dawn until you have three times told somebody you've never known me. That's a powerful moment. It's another one of these. Peter is confident in his discipleship, but he is at this point untried, and he will be tried this evening. This first real moment of pressure will come later this night, and Peter is going to eventually fold and walk away in fear and shame. But here's something that Peter does. It's important for us to hear what happens next between Peter and Jesus. Peter will not turn his back on Christ. Peter will not become part of the enemy's plan, but his courage will fail him. Peter, even after his, fail, his failure in his actual denial of Jesus Christ, he does not run from the disciples. He returns to them. So even when they are all frightened on that day between the crucifixion and the resurrection, Peter is still there with them. Friends, the enemy's plan with you is always 
to get you to walk away from the family of God. It's always his plan. It's always his plan. It doesn't work with Peter, even in his guilt and denial. And there's going to come a point later on in the Gospel of John when he sees Jesus, when the disciples recognize it's Jesus. They're out fishing. Jesus is on the shore. Someone recognizes that it's Jesus. Peter does a very Peter thing. He throws himself into the water, and he swims as hard as he can to get to Jesus. His very real guilt needs to be forgiven, and he wants to be restored. And it's at that moment where Christ's command to us becomes powerfully real to Peter. Christ shows him this kind of love and forgiveness and mercy. Friends, Jesus knows our sin, and he restores the sinner. The story of Peter's restoration is a powerful thing. Jesus will acknowledge his failure. In fact, in a certain way, Jesus is going to walk Peter through it. But he does it in a way that not only forgives him, restores him to relationship with his Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, but then calls him to preach the gospel to the rest of the world. He forgives him, he restores him, and he calls him. And it really is true. Peter will one day lay down his life for Jesus Christ, but only after living his life for Jesus. I want you to love each other the way I've loved you. Jesus pulls him back in. His denial was real. His guilt was real. But Jesus forgives and restores. The love of Jesus Christ can restore you, can forgive you and restore you and call you to his purposes. And this is one of the things the body of believers is called to accomplish, is to show that kind of grace. And you and I are restored and accepted, not to an idea, not to a philosophy, not to a self-help scheme, but to a risen and glorified Jesus Christ. We are restored, we are forgiven, and we are in relationship with the risen Lord of glory.